Well, if Thursday was Thanksgiving and Friday was Black Friday, uh, your thoughts may be turning towards uh, purchasing Christmas presents. And that may mean that you're calculating what your budget will be and who you're purchasing for and how much you can spend per person. I've done this every year that I can remember even since I was a little child. I had an allowance, a nickel for every year old I was. I'd collect it together. And uh, I came from a large family. I'm uh, the sixth of seven children. And as the older ones got married, then they had wives, and then they started having kids. And so uh, the number of people for whom I was buying presents briefly was quite huge until they felt they couldn't afford it and decided to cut back, but there was a point in which I can remember I had about 27 cents per person uh, to spend on them, and I'd go to the store and purchase a toothbrush or something like that uh, to try to give to them as, as a Christmas present. I didn't have a lot of money uh, to go around. You might, uh, as you're thinking about this, uh, view yourself as uh, quite the generous person. You might view yourself as the Scrooge, uh, but it certainly does uh, cause you to wonder, does it have anything to do with the value you have towards that particular person? Uh, for example, I've noticed as my kids have grown up and fallen in love, the amount of money they spend on the person whom they love uh, is surprising compared to what they would spend on their siblings. And I would think like, well, what, what happened here? I, I thought your siblings were the closest one to you. Are you now saying because you have fallen in love that person is that much important? And apparently it is. It means that, uh, yes, uh, the, the levels of affection have shifted uh, and the worth of that person has risen. And it's caused people to monetize, in a sense, uh, the value of the person. That's a hard thing for us, isn't it? To actually put a dollar amount on the value of a person. Look with me, please, at the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And we're going to look at a similar but different story uh, found at the end of Jesus' ministry, shortly before his crucifixion in which he was also anointed by a woman. And in this case, uh, the circumstances are different, the timing is different, the outcome is different, and yet uh, it is similar in the sense that a spikenard ointment, a very expensive ointment, is used. It's also interesting that the custom of anointing a person uh, to show uh, love and concern and as a gift to them of placing oil on the top of their head is substituted by an oil-based perfume. Uh, if you think of uh, the various oils that you have in your house, you uh, may have vegetable oil, canola oil, you might even have olive oil, you might even have cold-pressed virgin olive oil, which is starting to get up there a little bit expensive. But if you went into the bedroom and looked at your, uh, let's say it's a a dresser or something in which you may have uh, pretty little perfumes, uh, you can guess the value of each of the perfumes based on the size of the bottle. If the bottle is fairly large, 
the opening at the top is likely to be fairly large, meaning that it's somewhat diluted and you can put quite a bit of it on. Uh, the tiny little ones are very difficult to get anything out because they're so expensive and probably come from Paris or something like that. And I think the most expensive ones at all are the aerosol ones where you have to squeeze uh, the little pump and have just a, a spray come out for fear that you would use too much and spend it all too quickly. In this case, in the anointing of Jesus to express tremendous love and gratitude for who he is and what he has done, the question comes up, has she spent too much? That's a very interesting thing to, to evaluate. Can you spend too much on a person? How do you value the person, from 27 cents to $100 to $1,000 to a year's wages, how would you decide how much a person is worth? The story is, again, a dinner party, and the people involved are Simon the leper, whom we're not sure who he is, a wild guess might be the father of Lazarus and Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, that famous dear family of Jesus who lived just outside of Jerusalem in Bethany, a town where he often stayed on his way into Jerusalem and likely even stayed in their house. If it happens to be that Simon the leper is the father of Lazarus, then it would be the big family house. If the party is taking place in Simon the leper's house, which is a different house, He's obviously been healed by, from leprosy, and we're assuming it must have been Jesus who healed him. Uh, then uh, apparently he's such a close friend of the family that Martha is serving supper. Uh, we're not surprised at all. Uh, we have come to know Mary and Martha pretty well. We know if anyone's going to be serving in the kitchen, it's going to be Martha. We know if anyone is going to not be in the kitchen and be at Jesus' feet enjoying him, it's going to be Mary. Uh, we have seen, uh, even in the interaction in the previous chapter in John 11, in the resurrection of Lazarus, that Mary has a tendency to fall at Jesus' feet, even when she went out to meet him, uh, to greet his arrival uh, to uh, the tomb of Lazarus. She fell at Jesus' feet. Uh, the context is that Lazarus uh, has now also become famous, having died and having been raised from the dead, not only are the religious leaders planning to arrest Jesus and kill him, they're also planning to seize Lazarus and kill him as well, because he has become a person who can testify to Jesus' power to raise someone from the dead. The religious leaders, uh, clearly from the parallel passages, uh, both at the end of John and the beginning of Matthew 26, have said the problem in arresting Jesus is if we do it publicly, there'll be a riot. We have to figure a way to find him in a lonely place where we can arrest him without a crowd who could riot against us. In that context, uh, in a dangerous situation, Jesus has returned to the Jerusalem area, stopping in Bethany for dinner, 
And this is the beginning of the week of his crucifixion, the Saturday night before the Friday crucifixion. And I'm reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with him. Remember, the tables are down low. Uh, they lay on pillows or on couches facing the table. Mary then took a pound. Uh, in their understanding of a pound, it was 12 ounces worth, but I ask you, go home and look at your perfume bottle, see if any of them are 12 ounces and highly expensive. She took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. Nard was derived from a root of a plant in northeastern India on the border between uh, India and Nepal. At the foot of the Himalaya mountains, there is a plain there, and this is a rare root uh, from which they derive this very expensive spikenard ointment. She took a whole pound of this very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Uh, there are parallel passages of this account. You can read about it in Mark 14, 1 through 11, and Matthew 26, 1 through 16. If you read in those parallel passages, it appears that she started to pour it out on his head, but then worked her way down his body, even to his feet as well. And it appears that she's trying to get it to run across his entire body. If you've ever smelled a powerful perfume, you realize just a little goes a long way. In fact, John even comments, I can still smell the aroma of that perfume. It permeated the whole house. I don't know if you've known a person so well that you recognize the scent that they wear and have noticed even when they've come in the room, before you even turn around to see who it is, you can tell by the scent of the perfume or the cologne that they're wearing, so-and-so has arrived. But this is a phenomenal amount of perfume. Head to toe, she's putting it on Jesus. Uh, she anointed his feet and began to wipe his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She seems to be enjoying the sweet smell of love, of pouring out a very, very expensive gift. I don't know if you have made a special gift for someone else that was very precious, and they hardly wanted to use it. For example, my wife prepared, I think it was a needlepoint kind of towel uh, thing for my mother to use uh, in the kitchen, uh, but she had other towels she could use in the kitchen, and she thought they were so pretty and so special and that they'd been needlepointed by Carol that she put them away in the closet and never used them because they were so special. When would I pull those out? You probably have received gifts that you've put away because they're so special and have not used. What's interesting about the pouring out of perfume is there's no ability to get any of it back. Once spent, it is gone. 
And she's not just pouring out a little, which seems like it would be perfectly fine. How much perfume do you need? But she keeps pouring and pouring and apparently empties the bottle, 12 ounces full of this bottle on Jesus. The disciples are also here. They have come with Jesus to go uh, to the Passover. And so the disciples are witnesses of this. And the disciples regularly didn't understand what was going on, and it causes us to sympathize because occasionally as we're reading through the stories in Jesus' experiences, we're going like, uh, what's the significance of this? I have not yet understood what this is about. And Judas Iscariot, of all people, I would have guessed Peter would be the first to speak up, but no, it's Judas Iscariot speaks up and protests. And he, we're told by John, who's come to realize this later and is writing his gospel last, is the disciple who is the traitor, the one who's going to betray him. But we don't yet know that as the story is being told. Verse 4 says, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Isn't it interesting that you can quickly calculate how much something is worth? Uh, You may know this about uh, uh, particularly popular gifts this time of year. Uh, You may have heard uh, through the grapevine or on the news or things what gifts are most popular and how much they cost. And then when you hear someone is giving such and such a gift or getting such and such a gift, you can immediately say, I know how much that one costs. Wow, that's a gift. Judas Iscariot quickly calculates and says, that's a year's worth of wages. That's 300 denarii. That's a fortune. That was a waste. Now, those are strong words, and I'm combining together here the Johannine account along with the Markan account and the Matthean account in order to get some of the added details here. He literally thinks, how could you waste that expensive of a gift on Jesus. You should have sold it, and we could have given the money to the poor. Now, immediately before we uh, start to agree with Judas Iscariot and say, he's got a good point here, that's a lot of money. John introduced not only that he was soon to be the traitor, but he also introduced the fact that he's come to understand him to be the thief. Later on in this week, at the Last Supper on Thursday night, they're going to have it declared by Jesus that he is the traitor, and yet it will go right over their heads because they don't notice when he passes the dipped morsel to him. And Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And as he leaves, they all think he's just going out to distribute money to the poor. But before we get this story wrong, John quickly says in verse 6, now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. As he'd had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put in it. Now remember, he's reading back into the account additional information so we don't, as we're interpreting it, get the wrong impression here. And so with the knowledge that he gained later, as he tells the story now, he cautions us and says, don't think he was just such a practical, pragmatic person that he says that Jesus should have stopped her and that Jesus should have said, wow, this is a lot. You should just sell this and give the money to the poor. 
it's because he wanted to steal it. Now, what's surprising about how Judas Iscariot became the treasurer of the group, uh, they had a whole entourage that uh, traveled with them. There were a number of ladies mentioned in the Lucan account of those that traveled with him, and that these ladies were actually helping support uh, their ministry. They'd use it to uh, purchase uh, food, to uh, be able to move about, and actually to uh, give gifts to the poor as well. Uh, they viewed Judas Iscariot as the one who was perhaps the most trust trustworthy one among them. He was the only one from Judea. All the rest of them were Galilean. He was of the highest class. They seemed to be ordinary folks like fishermen and the like. Uh, and uh, he seemed to be well-connected, and uh, they weren't any of that. And so he would be the last person that they would expect would actually be stealing from the money. It's possible it started out quite small. It's possible that he uh, just borrowed money and then was slow paying it back and realized no one caught him and realized that he could begin to spend some of this money on himself, and he could have uh, worked his all, way all the way up to say, like, so much money is coming through that I don't even have to worry about this. I can take as much as I want. And he's now become just a common thief who's taking the money used to support Jesus, his disciples, and the entourage traveling with him, and spending it on himself. Yet he's such a liar that when he says, you shouldn't be so generous in your gift to Jesus, you should have sold this and give it to the poor, John now knows it's not because he cared about the poor, it's because he wanted to steal some of it. He might have considered it his commission for being the treasurer, justifying it in his mind, but really is, he's nothing more than a common thief. Now, our big question is, how is Jesus going to respond? Because that will be the entire clue is to our attitude towards lavish gifts and extravagant generosity. Will Jesus say this was inappropriate? Will Jesus say this was too much? Verse 7, therefore Jesus said, let her alone. Why are you making trouble for her? Uh, what she has done for me is a beautiful thing. I'm quoting from one of the other Gospels. I'm reading these other passages into this account so we don't have to turn to all three at the same thing time. He's saying, let her alone so she may keep it for the day of my burial. It's a beautiful thing she's done. This is her one and only chance to minister to me in this way. Since my time of death is at hand, she has done this with a view to my burial. Now, this is an amazing and shocking understanding for the disciples. And they have to process this because every time Jesus brings up that we're going back to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to the Romans, the religious leaders are going to arrest me, they're going to hand me over to the Romans, the Romans are going to crucify me, and I will rise again on the third day. They keep putting it out of their mind, they keep forbidding him from talking that way, and they keep saying, no, no, no. But here he says, she has done the right thing, not the wrong thing. When you're burying a dear loved one, you anoint that body with spices and ointments and perfumes. 
She has done this with a view to my burial. In fact, this is the Saturday night before the Friday crucifixion in which he will be buried by sundown Friday afternoon, beginning of the evening. It has, is not that far in advance. And he says, therefore, I'm receiving her gift as appropriate. Now, this sends all kinds of ideas running through our minds as to what gift is appropriate to give Jesus. If you think of his example of, I'm soon going to give my life, I'm soon to be buried, you're going to be anointing my body for burial. She has proleptically anointed my body even now as a gift of expression of love while I'm still alive and so I can enjoy what she is giving me. It causes us to say, how do we respond in death? Are we saying, oh, the person's dead, the person won't even know the quality of the casket I'm purchasing, the person's not going to know how many flowers I'm purchasing, the, <clears throat> the person's not going to know whether we're going to serve a dinner after the funeral. I can just spend what I want to spend. I don't even have to work. In this case, though, Jesus is still alive and appreciating what is being given to him as a gift. And it causes us to begin to say, do you realize what he's saying? Out on the table in front of all the rest of the disciples, Judas Iscariot has said, this was a waste. You should not have spent so much on Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, no, what she did was completely appropriate. I deserve what she has done. And it causes us to say, if I were to give a gift to Jesus, what would I give him and how much would it cost? Could I overspend on my gift to Jesus? Now, in order to make this a fairly easy choice, Judas Iscariot, the thief, the traitor, the one who's never believed, who's been a fake all along, says, we should have given the money to the poor. And that is an interesting proposition. Surely the poor need this. Couldn't Jesus have just received a little bit of the perfume and then said, keep the rest, let's sell it, and let's distribute it among the really needy people? Here is Jesus' response, verse 8. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, some people read that as saying, that is harsh. Why? I thought Jesus loved the poor. Well, it's as if he's saying, uh, I'm not going to be here very long. Uh, this is Saturday. It'll soon be Friday. You can help them whenever you like. But she has done what she can when she can. What she is doing is a memorial for my impending death. She has done the right thing. Wow. 
wow. I can see all the other disciples processing this in their mind and saying, like, I thought it was extravagant. I thought it was a lot. I thought it was expensive. Jesus, however, accepts it and praises it and says it's the right thing to do. In fact, he says, it is a good work she has done. It is a beautiful thing he's done. It is noble. It is commendable. It is honorable. It is praiseworthy. It's precious. It's excellent. And we should ask ourselves, what am I giving to Jesus? And to what extent am I being as generous as the example is here? Because how many examples do we have of how we give back to Jesus? How many examples do we have of how generous we would be in giving to Jesus? What he is after is not so much the expense of the perfume, but what she's saying when she pours it on him. She has taken the position of a servant down at his feet, and she is anointing him as a sign of honor, thanking him for who he is and what he's done. I think she's certainly thankful that she has Lazarus back, that she saw him die. They had asked for Jesus to come. He came late, but he raised Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus is alive and well, and she certainly is grateful for that. But you will notice, even before Lazarus ever died, that Jesus loved, excuse me, that Mary loved Jesus and enjoyed being at his feet. And she is desiring to pour out her worship upon him in an expensive, extravagant, lavish manner. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Lest we think that no one has ever treated anyone this way before. You could go back into the Old Testament, and you can remember when Queen Esther was being groomed, well, before she became queen, when Queen Vashti was deposed and Esther was being groomed to be queen, there was, I think, a year-long process that included all kinds of perfumes and the like in which she was getting ready to become the queen. It was a very expensive and very detailed process. If you look at for example, when the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon and saw him in his glory and saw all the wealth that was coming to him, you began to understand that God gave riches to Solomon to tell the world that Solomon was God's king and God's choice and was truly made the wisest man in the world. If the extravagance given to people like Queen Esther or King Solomon was over the top, then how could we ever say, stop when it comes to Jesus? That's enough. Let's be pragmatic about this. Let's be utilitarian about it. Let's show a little decorum here. No. Jesus is saying the lavish worship that she is pouring out upon him is appropriate. 
as expensive as it was, a year's wages poured on him at once. He is worth it. Now that tells you, when we are asking ourselves how we would worship Jesus, we should say, it's not a little bit at a time. It's not just enough to get by. It's not enough to say, well, what is he expecting? I should just give him at the level of his expectation. No, it's the thought of how much do you love me? How much would you like to give to me? What I find amazing about this thought of proleptically honoring him for his burial by anointing him with perfume just days before he actually dies and is buried brings great honor to him. What I find interesting also is that this story is told in three of the Gospels. This is an important story. And here, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about what she did because it teaches us a gigantic lesson about not holding back and to say, I will give you my very best. I will give you my all. That is one of the most beautiful things that we can do is to say, you're that important to me. I give everything I am and everything I have to you. In Jesus' expression of his love for the church, he describes it like a marriage in which he is the groom and we are the bridegroom. And he speaks of his love for the church in which he is extravagant in his love and asks us to love him in return. If you think of a couple coming together to be married, as they take their vows, they hold nothing back. They give themselves wholeheartedly, entirely to one another. I'm not speaking of any prenuptial agreements here. I'm saying, I'm giving you all of me, everything I have, everything I am, I give it to you. In my opinion, this is what Jesus wants, not just of his dear friend Mary, but what he wants of you and me. He wants our heart. He wants our life. He wants our soul. He wants everything about us. He wants us to be poured out for him. Here are the lyrics to a song written by Bill George and Gloria Gaither, sung by Steve Green. One day, a plain village woman, driven by love for her Lord, recklessly poured out a valuable essence, disregarding the scorn. And once it was broken and spilled out, a fragrance filled all the room. Like a prisoner released from his shackles, like a spirit set free from the tomb. Broken 
and spilled out. Just for love of you, Jesus, my most precious treasure lavished on thee. Broken and spilled out and poured at your feet, in sweet abandon, let me be spilled out and used up for thee. Lord, you were God's precious treasure, his loved and his own perfect son, sent here to show me the love of my Father. Just for love it was done. And though you were perfect and holy, you gave up yourself willingly. You spared no expense for my pardon. You were used up and wasted for me. Broken and spilled out, just for the love of me, Jesus, God's most precious treasure lavished on me. Broken and spilled out and poured at my feet. In sweet abandon, Lord, you were spilled out and used up for me. Brothers and sisters, as we consider what the Lord wants from us, it's not how much it costs. It's not what others think. What he wants is very simply all of us with nothing held back. He wants all of our devotion, all of our heart, all of our service. He wants us to love him like no one else. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He deserves all. We'll sometimes, quote-unquote, spoil ourselves. We'll sometimes, quote-unquote, be self-indulgent. We'll pamper ourselves. We'll surprise ourselves with our own generosity. How much more so does our Lord desire wasteful extravagance and lavish worship and a beautiful thing that he describes as being done to me. Let's personalize it and let's tell the Lord in our hearts, Lord, you have all of me. I give my heart to you. I hold back nothing. I am yours. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you thanking you for our understanding of gifts and our understanding of worth. Truly, your Son is beyond all worth, the most precious person, your only begotten Son. And how humbly he was willing to veil his glory and hold back the independent exercise of his attributes so that he would live like one of us as a human being and would humble himself even to the point of death on the cross, taking our place, paying our penalty, dying for our sins. Oh, Father, in return, we come before you and say, I give you all that I am and all I ever will be. I am yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.